All right, I'm telling you right now, some of you guys need to just wake up because we're going to be in John 17 this morning and we're going to get going right away. So turn there if you have an actual Bible or maybe a Bible app on your iPhone, Android or tablet. You know who you are. Those of you that uh, use your phones, everyone else in here is judging you. Okay, but not me, not me. I'm not judging you at all. I want to start us off with a question this morning, and it's this. Jesus prayed for us as a church this morning. What would he say? If Jesus got up here instead of Dustin just now or Craig a little bit ago and he prayed, what would he say? So the answer to that question is huge because prayers reveal so much about a person. They reveal, prayers reveal when there's honesty and vulnerability are core and how we're viewing our current circumstances. And if somehow we had the unique opportunity to hear the Son of God pray for us, we would learn a lot about his heart. We'd learn a lot about what he's all about. We'd also learn about, a lot about what he thinks is most important and urgent in this world right now. We would learn a lot about what he thinks of us, our current circumstances, the community around us. We'd learn a lot about what he thought our, our challenges were, maybe even some of our sins. We would learn a lot about where we needed to grow and what we needed to start focusing on, and maybe some stuff we needed to stop focusing on. If Jesus prayed for us, we'd all be listening very closely. We'd have it recorded, we'd transcribe it, we'd pass it out, Pastor Brad would write a small group curriculum about it. We'd all be studying it in small groups. We'd learn from it. We'd repent, and we'd be changed. Friends, John 17 is this prayer. From start to finish in John 17... In what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for himself and for us, his church. Now, a little bit of background before we dig in. Last week, Brad was in chapter 13, and he did a great job kind of setting the scene for us. Chapters 13 to 17 are kind of one big scene here, okay? It's kind of one evening there in the upper room. There's an intensity and a drama in this text that we need to grasp. There's an urgency here. John 13 One starts out by telling us this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, in this moment, Jesus knows that his hour has come. And he faithfully loves these disciples, even up to his last moments. He knows what's coming, and yet he still finds the time to care for these disciples. He spends an entire evening from chapters 13 to 16 spending time with them eating with them, washing their feet, teaching them. And in chapter 17, after all that, he prays for them. And in this, we see the courage of the son. You know, if, it was, if this was me and my crucifixion was looming, you could just get rid of chapters 13 to 17 and there'd be one verse. And Tony was curled up in the corner in the fetal position, crying his eyes out, wanting this to pass from him. All right? Or it would say this, and Tony ran from Jerusalem as far as he could. He pulled a Jonah. That's what it would say. There'd be no caring. There'd be no loving. I'd be about myself, but not Jesus. He loved them to the end. See his courage. See his strength as he faces this challenge. And as soon as chapter 17 ends, Jesus' arrest, trials, and crucifixion begin. We're not really sure where this prayer takes place, but we are sure that these are literally the last moments that he has with these disciples before he's going to die. You guys ready to dig in? Read with me here in the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus here in these first five verses, he's praying for himself. And he's primarily concerned with the grand purpose of his mission here on earth. The whole reason why he came. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us at all that from the very first moment of this prayer, the very, the very most important thing that's on the forefront of Jesus' mind is for God to be glorified. Everything that the Son does is in order that the Father might be glorified. The Son is fixed on the Father's glory. And even when Jesus prays for himself to be glorified, it's so that the Father might be glorified. You and I are not like this at all. When we seek glory, when we seek praise, it's to the expense of God's glory, but not the Son. To glorify Him is to glorify the Father. And this is true in all things for God. Everything that God has done, is doing, and will do in this world is for the sake of His own glory. And we see this in Jesus' prayer right from the get-go. Now, the gospel story, the good news, the grand story of the Scriptures is beautifully laid out here in these first five verses. And it it does so from the vantage point of glory. As we see here, Jesus mentions in verse 5, a glory that was shared between he and the Father in eternity past. A glory that he brought God on earth in verse 4. A glory that will result from his sufferings in verse 1. And then we see a glory that will be restored between he and the Father after his ascension and resurrection in verse 5. And in this we see the gospel. And this is the gospel. That in eternity past, before the world existed, there was God. And the good news in this story begins with God. And as the Bible unfolds, we come to find out that God is quite complex. Right? Go figure. Jesus here in verse 5, he mentions an existence and a glory that he had with, with the Father before the world began. And we see from this that God exists eternally as the Trinity. God eternally is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when he creates the world, he doesn't do so because he's lonely. He doesn't do so because he's bored. God eternally exists in fellowship. God eternally exists in community. He doesn't do it. The Godhead is good. Why does he create the world? To show himself off. To show off his splendor. To show us how amazing he is. In Psalm 19.1 it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And God shows us how glorious he is by speaking this whole thing into existence with using just words from his mouth. In just a quick glance at the creation account in Genesis, you'll see this phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said, from verses 3 to 27, eight different times. He speaks it all with words from his mouth. And the final thing that God creates is us, male and female. He creates us. And Isaiah 43, 7 says he does that for his own glory as well. He formed us and made us for his own glory. We were made by him and for him to worship him, to have a relationship with him, to have a relationship with each other, and to enjoy this creation that God had made all to the glory of God. And God looked over this creation that he had made, and he said in Genesis 131 that it was very good. But something went terribly wrong. And a dark twist enters into the story as this good creation that God had made fell into sin. 
And Genesis 3 tells us the story of how Adam and Eve disbelieved and disobeyed God by eating of the fruit of the tree that was in the middle of the garden. God said not to. Following their own sinful and selfish impulses, choosing to live life on their own terms, rather than obeying the perfect will of God, they rebelled. They sinned against God, and it was a cosmic rebellion. And don't be so prideful to think that you would have done better if you were there, because we do this every day. See yourself there. These are our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they're acting just, like, just much like us. And in that single dark moment, sin crept into God's good creation and threw everything into chaos. Disorder, death, separation, everything changed. And what do you think God did in response to our rebellion? What was his reaction? Did he turn his back on us like we turned ours on him? Did he judge us and give us what we deserved? No. No. And this is good news. God did not turn his back on creation bent on destruction. Friends, he pursued it in love. After the fall in Genesis 3, God sets out on a journey of redemption to rescue and to restore creation. God did not create a world bent on destruction only to detach himself from it once it rebelled. We come to find out that God cares infinitely and passionately about us and about this world. And he longs to restore it back to himself. And we come to find out that God is willing to go to great lengths to restore creation back to himself. At the crux and at the very center of this gospel story and God's journey of redemption is a hero, a son, a sent son, Jesus, who is God become man, Emmanuel, God come down to be with us. And God came with a very specific mission. And Luke 19.10 tells us what that mission is. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to bring us back to God, to restore us back to himself, to save that which was lost. And at the center of the story is a God who steps down out of heaven and comes to this broken world. And while on this earth, in John 17, 4, Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. And we see Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve failed. We see Jesus sinless where we are, we're proven sinful and rebellious. How did, God glorif- how did Jesus glorify God? He lived the life that you and I are living right now. With all of its temptations, with all of its trials, with all of its moments, he lived your life that you're living right now, and he did so without sin, without rebellion. In perfect submission, trust, and obedience to the will of the Father, Jesus accomplished all the work that God had gave him to do. And it's that exact point in this gospel story that we find this sent son praying in verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. And when Jesus prays, glorify your Son, that's shorthand for his imminent sufferings. Jesus is literally moments away from the cross. And how does God glorify the Son? When God glorifies the Son and lifts him up and puts him on display for all the world to see, for praise and glory and admiration of the Son, what does the Father do? And the greatest display of love this world has ever seen, God crushes his Son crushes him on a blood-soaked cross. And he glorifies the Son by unleashing on him his own wrath for the sins of the whole world. He glorifies the Son by sending him to the cross where he bears our shame, where he bears our separation, where he bears the penalty of our rebellion, and he bears our hell in our place. 
God sent his innocent, spotless, without blemish son and laid on him that which was due us all. In the cross, God glorifies himself as he glorifies the son and raises him up high and displays a powerful mixture of his justice and his holiness and his love and his mercy for all the world to see and for all the world to believe. And so sufficient was this work, and so effectual were these sufferings, and so satisfied was God's wrath towards sin that God raised Christ from the dead after three days. And in that moment, sin, Satan, and death all lost their power and stranglehold in this world as Christ burst out the other side of the grave into resurrection life. That's glory. And that's what Jesus prays for. Are you people alive this morning? Amen. Thank you. That's glory. And that's what Jesus prays for. But this gospel story doesn't end there. Jesus, now risen from the dead, spends 40 days here on this earth. And he ascends into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And this is exactly where the Son is at right now, at the right hand of the Father. Do you know what he's doing? Look at verse 2 of John 17. He's continuing his saving work as the one who has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now interceding on our behalf and he's building his church he's gathering men and women to himself he's drawing them to himself he's granting eternal life to sinners waiting for the time when he will return to this world and make his enemies a footstool for his feet where he will rule and reign in glory with all those whose hope and trust is in him and make all things new to the glory of god that's the gospel that's the gospel amen creation fall redemption jesus comes back and restores it all and i don't know if you know christ like this and if you're here and you don't know his love like this i invite you to just trust him you don't need to walk some aisle you don't need to fill out some card you don't need to go to some class right where you're at you beat your breast you cry out loud in repentance god save me i see that you've sent your son god thank you i believe And so it's this gospel work and this mission and this glory that Christ is so fixed on in this moment. And as we look at the whole gospel story and we read further in John 17, we see that Jesus' prayer and John's emphasis here is on Jesus, the sent son, or Jesus, the missionary. The word sent from chapters 13 to 17 is used 13 times. And in this we see Jesus, the ultimate missionary, sent by the Father into the world to seek and save creation. Sent into the world to reveal who God is by his person, life, and words. You see in verse 6, Jesus says, I manifested your name. Jesus reveals and narrates the Father. Sent to accomplish our salvation through the finished work and fulfilling his mission there. Jesus now with authority in heaven on earth, he grants eternal life to sinners. And Jesus continues to seek and save and he continues his mission. Jesus now, as the model and example and ultimate missionary, sends his church on mission into the world. Jesus continues his saving work by enlisting us into his mission. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? It means this. Christian, you are a missionary. Everyone in here who's in Christ, I'm talking to everyone in here who's in Christ. I'm talking to the guy who thinks I'm talking to some other guy in here. You're a missionary. You. Yeah, you. All right? Say this with me. I am a missionary. Say that. I am a missionary. Yes. You got sent. John 17, that just happened. All right? Know it. Embrace it. See it here. And I want you to see something else. 
Look at John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And you know what this is? This is John's version of the Great Commission. And it drips with this kind of sent missionary language. Matthew told us to go and make disciples. He told us to go be disciple makers and make disciples, right? John tells us that we're sent. Now, I want us all to hear this because there's need. Bethel, there's need for us to shift in our thinking a bit. It's part of our identity now, who we are in Christ. We are missionaries. Thinking about this connection between Christians and mission, Charles Spurgeon once said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I'm not arguing with Spurgeon, all right? And he, 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 he's focused here on this identity that we have here as missionaries. If you were here last week, you heard Brad's challenge to start serving one another and serving around here and getting more involved. And if you're hearing me right now, you might be thinking, man, this dude's just trying to add to my plate. This guy's just trying to add more stuff onto my life. Maybe, maybe, okay? I'm not saying that this isn't going to cause you to go and do. I'm not saying that this isn't going to rearrange your schedule. I hope it does. I hope it rearranges your whole life. But I'm more so encouraging you, rather than adding on to you, I want to encourage you to see your identity in Christ as a missionary. Not something, not so much something that you go and do, but someone that you are. See, most of us already find ourselves in neighborhoods, workplaces, relationships with people that don't know God. And most of us don't need to go and find a place to be on mission. God already has us there. For most of us, I want to challenge us in our reason and purpose for being where you're at. To see your identity as a missionary and to start living with intention and purpose. To start being so selfish. Stop being so selfish in those moments and to start to to look for opportunities and pray for opportunities to show and share Christ's love. Listen, I'm not telling you to shoulder the full weight of this mission. No. God has already done the hard work of mission. He's already accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. We are now co-laborers with God in this mission in the world. He has, he has by his mercy invited us into this mission that we might labor with him. He's the one that came, lived, died, and rose again. Jesus is the risen, ascended, authoritative son who now grants eternal life to the Father gives him. We're not rogue missionaries in this world as if God's purposes and plans depend on us. And yet, God has saw fit to include his church in this mission. Missionaries are not just people like Bill and Christina Widdup or any other missionary that you know who followed God's call to go somewhere other than here. Christian, your call to mission is no less than theirs. And your urgency and resolve and purpose and passion should be no less than theirs either. Christian, you are a missionary. Own it. Just own it. So, missionaries, before Jesus leaves and sends us on mission, he has some concerns. And in Jesus' infinite wisdom, he knew our potential sins. He knew our tendencies. And he knew the tensions that we would have to live in as new missionaries new missionaries in this world. And so he prays for us in John 17. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 14. We're going to focus 14 to 21. So read this with me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 14, Jesus prays this, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. As missionaries in this world, one of the things that paralyzes us the most is this, the fear of man. The fear of man. What others think about us. And some of us are genuinely afraid of what others will say and think about us if we open up our mouths about Christ. We fear men rather than God. And I will tell you that personally, this is an area that I struggle in. I have sinned greatly in this area. And if we're all honest in this room, we'd have to say that at some level, we all fear. We all fear. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly talk about this fear in this prayer, but I think it's implied. And when he says that the world's going to hate you, but John previously in his letter does talk about it specifically in John 12, 42 and 43. Look at this. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It was a problem at the time of Christ, and it's a problem now. We see these rulers, we see these, these people of position. As Christ came and as they saw his life and his works and his words, they believed. But they feared the consequences socially of, conf- of confessing Christ. And so they didn't. They remained quiet. And, and, and it kept them away from mission. It kept them away from trusting in Christ truly. This is a problem. And I'm not so arrogant to think that a little section of my sermon and a few verses is going to fix this in us. This is something that God has to do in us. It's a process for a lot of us. But here's how God's teaching us not to fear. By reminding us of his love in the gospel. That's how he's teaching us not to fear. By showering us with his love. Look at how Christ does this at the very last verse in chapter 17. I made known to them your name. I revealed them to you. I revealed you to them. And I will continue to make it known. Okay, so Christ is continuing to reveal the Father to us. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Part of Jesus' continuing work in our lives is is revealing to us further the depth and rich of his love. It's this very same John that writes about this, the power that this love has in 1 John 4.18 when he writes this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. As we grow in our understanding of God's perfect love in our lives, and as God loves us and reveals to us further how much he loves us, our fear will diminish. We will begin to see his perfect love for us in the way he views us. That God's wrath has been removed through Christ. No condemnation. God's now our father in the gospel, not our judge. And in Christ, I now have the acceptance and love and approval of the only person whose opinion matters in this world, God's. And God has gone to great lengths so that he might accept me and welcome me and bring me into his family. And when you meditate on that, when you dwell on that, fear of man will diminish in your life. And the love of God will increase. And there's a freedom and a peace and a joy that's going to be known there. And at the same time, at the same time that we begin to start dwelling on this love in the gospel 
and it casts out our fear, it's also going to well up in our hearts a joy for the gospel itself. Because it's the heart that's immersed in the gospel is going to be the tongue that speaks of Jesus. That's how that works. Meditating, knowing, understanding, studying, thinking on the love of God. I bring this up because as missionaries, we need to overcome this. Fear of man is such a hindrance to the mission. Now, living faithfully as Christians on mission in this world is difficult. And I'm not just saying that in passing. It is. It's hard. It's messy. It's tough. And really, that's the big, obvious, unspoken thing here in this prayer, right? I'm sending them into the world. God, help them. That's the big point here. Jesus, help them. Or God, help. Jesus says, God, help them. That's what, that, yeah. And the reason why living the life on mission is difficult is twofold. One is this. It confronts our biggest sins of selfishness and comfort. Our, our sins of just comfy, cushy, easy life just, it just pulls at us here. As God calls us on mission, we're like, no. I want to sit on my couch. I want to have my cushy life. I want to be just detached from the world and not do this. It tugs at us there. I want my me time. I want to live easy. Just confess it. It's okay. We all sin in this way. All of us. This tugs at our selfishness and our infatuation with comfort. The second thing is this. Living out this mission, it's just messy and hard. It is. When we get on mission, we start engaging neighbors and friends and coworkers. It's not easy. It's messy. And instead of dealing with the multiple complications, hurdles, and frustrations and barriers that come with engaging the world around us, we find ourselves just giving up. And when we give up, we find ourselves falling into one of two ditches, right? And here are the ditches. The first is our tendency to retreat, and the other is our tendency to resemble the world. Our tendency to retreat from the world and our tendency to resemble the world. And Jesus prays against these two extremes in verse 15. Look, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Or a little bit later on, he says this, they are not of the world, but I have sent them into the world. The mission tension is neither separation nor similarity. It's neither retreat nor resemblance. Jesus wants us to be in, but not of. In, but not of. This is a tension for sure. First, let's deal with our tendency to retreat. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a nasty flu going around. See all these empty seats? These are not people that did not set their clocks forward. These are people that are at home throwing up. All right? You just need to know that. And at the beginning of this week, my whole family was sick. All right? Anna, Britton, Camden, Pam. And on Wednesday, I had to stay home to take care of Pam. And I was all freaked out. I didn't know if I was going to be able to come and preach this weekend. I'm emailing Steve, emailing Jim. We got to come up with a backup plan. Right? And so Pam regains her strength on Wednesday. I come into the office. I go eat Chinese. I open up a fortune cookie, and it says, a great adventure awaits you this weekend. I don't know what that great adventure was, but I didn't want anything to do with that. All right? I didn't want anything to do with that. And so I'm all freaked out. And you know who's freaked out? Dustin. This dude is so paranoid that he's going to get sick. This guy uses so much hand sanitizer, and he doesn't try to hide it at all. He's like, dude, get away from me, right? He's just like two steps back, like, you stay right there. He's covering hands and sanitizer. If we want to do a study of the long-term effects of hand sanitizer, we're going to have to study Dustin, because this guy, if, if he could drink this stuff, he would. If someone came up with some edible, flavored hand sanitizer, 
Dustin will be all over that. And if you come up with that idea, this sermon's recorded and I want in on that. Just to let you know. All right? But we do this, right? When people are sick, we're like, man, get away. I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. Some of us treat our neighbors like they have the latest flu bug. We act like we're going to get some kind of sin and bad worldview flu if we go hang out with our neighbors. We retreat. We retreat. We do. And what I see happen is that our our very good intentions to live faithful, holy, set-apart lives and to not conform and resemble this world, we find ourselves living contrary to the tension that Jesus prays for here, to be in the world but not of. And here's just a couple of thoughts for us that find ourselves struggling with retreating, like myself. And the first is this. I'm talking to myself here, okay? We're in this together. Here's the first one. Sin is first right here in our hearts, not out there. Sin's right here, not out there. You don't need to look any further than yourself to find the tendency and the natural drifting away from God into moral and theological error. We act like sin and bad worldview comes from the world around us. It's not true. It begins in our hearts. We do just fine on our own. The other thought is this. Fellowship with sinners is the gospel. Fellowship with sinners is the gospel. God has sent his son into the world to live, die, and rise again so that he might reconcile us to himself and so that he can have fellowship with sinners. Fellowship with sinners is the gospel. Do you understand this? God has fellowship with sinners every day when he has fellowship with me and you. You look at the life of Jesus Christ. He, he radically, radically breaks down this notion of separation when he's inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house. When he's hanging out with sinners and reclining that table and eating meals with them. Jesus comes and shatters this. He has relationship and fellowship with sinners. And now Jesus sends us into the world to imitate his love in the context of these relationships. Friend, friends, we need to avoid retreating. It's not the gospel. Now to the other side, resemblance and conformity. Clearly one of Jesus' main emphasis in this prayer and our presence and participation in this world is for our protection. It's for our, it's for our holiness. Look in verse 11. Keep them or protect them in your name. Verse 15, keep them, protect them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them, grow them, mature them. Jesus makes it very clear that we are not of this world. We ought to feel like aliens in this world. Our love and worship and hope and security and identity and joy and desires and longings are not found in this world. They are found in Christ. We are not of this world. It goes so much deeper than what we wear and what we listen to and all that external jazz. This is, this is heart stuff. This is allegiance stuff. This is core stuff. Not found in this world. We're not of this world. But let's not forget how easy it is to conform to this world. I want to show you something. Turn to Romans 12.2. Turn to Romans 12.2. I'm going to show you how, just how easy this is and how this works. Conformity to the world. I hear pages still wrestling. I just want to let you know that people with apps on their phones are already at Romans 12.2. <laughs> Something to pray about. Right, Randy? You're already there, brother. You are already there. All right, Romans 12.2. Paul writes this. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul just gets done writing 11 chapters on the glorious gospel. And now he comes to chapters 12 and to show us what this looks like in our lives. And the first thing he says is that all of our lives need to be about worship. We need to be living sacrifices. And the first thing that he tells us, do not be conformed to this world. And you see that word there, be conformed? You know what that word is? It's a passive verb. You know what that means? It means this. The quickest way to conformity in this world, do nothing. Don't do a thing. Don't do a thing. Just sit around and be lazy. Don't study your Bible. Don't pray. Don't come to church. Don't get in a small group. Stop confessing and fighting sin. Don't do any of that and you'll be conformed in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Clearly, this is an issue, something that we need to guard against. And it's true. When it comes to mission, in some cases, it's just good for Christians to get out of certain relationships and stop engaging certain places because it's leading them to sin and conformity. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 6. This is not just this easy thing. There needs to be wisdom. There needs to be discretion added as we go. But what I see in John 17 is God's desire for us to grow spiritually as we go. John 17 is teaching us to grow as we go. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I love verse 17 because it reminds me that God's word is truth. It's not just true, okay? Meaning this, scripture is God's very breath. It's his very words. And his words are the very definition and standard of truth. To say that God's words are just simply true is to say that they conform to some other standard of truth. No, God's word is truth. It is the very standard of truth against which everything else must be tested and compared. Verse 17 also reminds me that God's desire and work in my life is towards the end that I grow to be more like Christ. That's what sanctify means, set apart, grow unto Christ's likeness. Verse 17 also reminds me that God's word is so vital to this growth process. I ought not to think that I'm gonna be okay and grow spiritually when I'm just neglecting God's word. Christ-likeness will never happen. It's so vital, and thank God for it. And I think as a church, we get this. We get this. There's so much activity in this church that has us interacting with God's word. Bible studies and services and gatherings and more Bible studies, small groups that are going through Bible studies, core groups, listening to sermons online, reading Bible study blogs. It's so awesome. I love it. But here's where I want to challenge us. Some of us think that mission and maturing are separate. They are not. Mission and maturing go hand in hand. They run the same track. Jesus' prayer for sanctification in John 17 finds itself in the context of being sent. And according to John 17, sanctification happens when we interact with God through his word while we find ourselves on mission. God intends for us to grow as we go. Some of us have developed spiritual growth rhythms that keep us from mission. Some of us are so busy focusing on our own personal growth at the expense of ignoring our call as missionaries. Now, I'm going to say this, and some of you aren't going to like it, but I don't care because I have the microphone and you don't. I'm being serious. I'm, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I mean, I meant to make you laugh there, but some of us need to repent seriously. Look at how, how busy and how active we are. How many Bible studies and small groups we're a part of. Some of us are a part of eight Bible studies, three small groups, two core groups. Just stop the insanity. We're so busy. 
We find ourselves so busy here, we have no margin for our neighbors. And I'll have you know, I asked Pastor Brad, and he told me I can tell you that. All right? So this, so it's not just me. I asked the pastor of small groups if I can say that. And he said, yeah, sounds good. Do it. Seriously, though, Martin Luther talked about how a Christian's faith needs to be outside the temple. Okay? Some of us are so busy inside the temple. Something to pray about. Something to look at. Now, one of the questions and concerns I hear most about Mission Them is this. Why are we pursuing multi-sites and multiple partnerships when we don't have discipleship figured out here? Why are we doing this? Why are we going here when we got stuff here we need to figure out? And that's a great question. And you might be asking that question. I have a great answer. John 17. John 17. Mission and spiritual maturity were never meant to be divorced from each other. Jesus' main emphasis in this prayer is the mission that he sends us on. And as we go, he prays for some things that we need, and sanctification happens to be one of them. Bethel, if we sit around as a church and wait to reach some sort of high level of spiritual maturity before we go, we're never going to go. Ever. And personally, you sit around and you wait till you're some Bible scholar to be used of God, you're never going to go. You're going to be stagnant. God's intention is that we grow as we go. And really, what does it mean to have discipleship figured out? Disciples, according to Matthew 28, go and make others disciples. We'll have discipleship figured out when we go and start making other disciples. That's discipleship. So here's how spiritual maturity and mission go hand in hand. Christian missionary, you pray. You pray hard. God, change my heart. Break my heart for my coworkers, my neighbors, and my friends. God, give me opportunities. Overcome this fear that I have in myself and that I'll just open up my mouth. God, I'll just, I'll just start engaging. And you watch. You watch. You watch how God uses you. And then you watch how your joy increases. And then you watch your, your desire for God's word increase. Watch your prayer life increase. Watch your joy increase. That's how that works. As God uses us, as we go, we grow. It goes hand in hand. And as you grow, you'll be crawling out of your skin to go. That's how it works. That's how it works. Growing as we're going. Last point. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus talks about the world coming to know and believe that he's come and that he's loved us, it's not a result of us knowing seminary-level apologetics. It's not about us knowing all the ins and the outs and nuances of arguments and making airtight arguments about all these things. And that's so important. That's so key. And if don't hear me and I'm saying that that's not important. We don't need that. But I'm talking about the apologetic that Jesus gives us here in verses 21 to 23. Look at what he says. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See that? 22. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. These are the kind of apologetics that we need around here. Unity, together, locking arms, unity in relationship, authenticity in relationship with God, and love for each other and for our neighbors. These speak, these speak to the gospel much louder than any airtight argument to a skeptical world to see the authenticity of the gospel fruit lived out in our lives. And so, Bethel, here we find ourselves our context, our mission. We find ourselves in our little portion of the world in the middle of this gospel story. 
God is still on mission. He's still at work. And here we find ourselves. He's using us. Mission them. Continuing Christ's mission in Northwest Indiana through multiple sites and multiple partnerships. I'm so excited about this. Just as a personal testimony to this, I'm so glad to be back. It's been such a joy to be back here serving with you all and a joy to be back up here preaching and teaching. But I got to let you guys know, I don't know if I'd be here if we weren't attempting this. That's how much I believe in this. I don't want to be a part of a church that's not attempting something big. I don't want to be a part of a church that's so inward and doesn't want to go. So excited. Multi-sites mean new communities of missionaries gathered and and scattered to show and share the love of Christ in those communities. New partnerships mean partnering with other missionaries who are doing missionary work where we would struggle. What is the strength of mission, mission them? What is the strength? It is a church of sent missionaries who love each other in unity, love God and live an authentic relationship with him, and who show and share the love of Christ with our neighbors. Friends, don't think for a second that Mission Them is just about some new site in Hobart and Portage. It's just about erecting some building. It's not. It's about being missionaries where God already has us. Mission Them doesn't start whenever we launch a new site. It's already began. It's already started. It starts when you leave here. It started back in John 17. That's Mission Them. Us, sent, scattered, going, where you live, where God has you. I want to end tonight with 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. Go ahead and turn there. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12, we're going to see everything that Jesus prays for here summarized. And I want us to be encouraged. Again, notice page, pages going. Already there. Keep praying. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So here's this in but not of. God has chosen us to be what? A people. A holy nation and a royal priesthood. Holy, set apart, not of the world. A priesthood in and for the people. In and for our community. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why did he do this? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness in the marvelous light. Once we were a people... Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. See, there's that alienness. There's that not of. We're sojourners. We're exiles. This world's not our home. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's that sanctification. There's that. Now I want to hate sin and push it away. But look at this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. You see that? It's among, in front of them. They see this. Keep your conduct, this authenticity among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, there's that hate part, there's that resistance we're going to get as we go on mission. They may see your good deeds. They see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Peter says here that, that God is using us in this world to draw men and women to himself. Jesus is coming back one day in splendor and in glory. And I want more people in this region to be glorifying God on that day. And I know you do too. Let's pray. God, change us. As our, our, our selfish and cushy hearts right now are just 
are just wanting to resist this. And we're scared and we fear. God, by your love and by your gospel, change us. Change us. May we see your glory. May we see the sent son who's come to rescue us. And may that well up in our hearts a desire to go. God, use us. God, I pray for mission them. So awesome. God, thank you. Thank you for this. May we all start to get on board, give boldly to this mission with our money, with our, with our prayers, with our, with our, with our efforts and, and energy and time. God, may you start to soften hearts, prepare hearts in new communities. And as we go from here, use us to bring many to yourself, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.